Welcome to Zeocast, six questions for industry leaders in unmanned aerial systems, geospatial, and the industries that surround them. Brought to you by Zeo Air. Sit back and enjoy this week's guest. Next on Zeocast, we have John Damish, who is the CEO of Iris Automation. It's been a very busy year for Iris and for the industry in terms of technology, regulations, and partnerships. But let's learn a little bit more about John. He brings over 30 years of extensive aviation technology experience and executive leadership, building upon his technical background in engineering, software development, and systems integration. Before Iris Automation, he led new business ventures at Boeing Next, before that, he was Chief Growth Officer at Institute, a Boeing subsidiary, developing novel aircraft and UAS innovation, including Detect and Avoid. He was also a Boeing Executive Liaison and Board Observer to SkyGrid, a joint venture between Boeing and Spark Cognition. Join me in welcoming John Damish. John, it is so great having you on ZeoCast today. Thank you so much. Of course, Brown. It's great to be here. And it's nice to be talking to you outside of a different committee forum, which we tend to cross <laughs> paths every once in a while. So absolutely. I think everybody in the industry at some point uh, is tripping over themselves in a sense. Uh, but, you know, the uh, industry leaders are the industry leaders. I don't think we should uh, apologize for that. And it's that it's that forward thinking that um, I think sets uh, people apart. Um, there are, you know, there's a lot of lot going on in our industry right now, but you know, it's just so great to talk with you today because you guys are so uh, forward facing at, at Iris. So, what's been your career journey and personal interest that led you to the role at, at Iris Automation? Oh, how, how did this all happen? Yeah. So, uh, gosh, you know, in the beginning, uh, I'm a baseball player, so I, I never say beginning; it's the beginning. Um, now, I, I've just always been into aviation, so I was that annoying kid in the airport, you know, when I was five, telling everybody whether they wanted to hear it or not, how many engines were on the airplane, what kind of thrust they produced, how many passengers could carry, you know, everything. It just right. it's always been just kind of in my blood. Um, first flight lesson when I was 14, so I was literally oh. flying planes before I was driving cars, oh. and uh, and just you know it's always been a parallel path for me. Um, primary path through school was through aerospace engineering. Um, was fortunate enough to find some opportunities shortly after college that it got me actually into the entertainment business for a little bit, but it was always yeah. related to flying. It was a flight simulation company that made uh -huh. uh, first location-based entertainment simulators. It was a place called fighter town here in Southern California, which was amazing. Oh. You come in with 11 of your friends, put on flight suits, jump in different simulators and, Dog flight, five formation, do aerial oh, refueling, wow. do carrier ops, you name it. It was, it was super cool. Um, the business was terrible. It didn't last, <laughs> but it was, the technology was super cool. But it got me into kind of the software side of things. Um, I ended up in a variety of software companies and then ended up running one called 2D3, which took mm. uh, imagery and telemetry off of airborne platforms and specifically mm. commercial off-the-shelf sensors like video cameras. Uh, and converted it into highly accurate um, kind of geotemporal data. Um, mm -hmm. We made software for the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, we ended up on a couple of key programs and then ultimately sold that business to Boeing 
and got integrated into the in-situ subsidiary, which I'm mm. sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. Yes. Uh, in-situ is one of Boeing's biggest um, you know, kind of drone businesses. And uh, they make the drones called Scan Eagle and Integrator. And the Integrator was the, um, uh, the baseline commercial product for the Marine Corps' Blackjack UAS program. Very so, yeah, so that was cool. Um, that got me into kind of big Boeing. Um, I was in in situ for a few years, and then I went into big Boeing in their future mobility division that was called Boeing Next, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was doing all kinds of incredibly cool things um, related to future mobility. Anything from small drones for inspection and, and package delivery all the way up to passenger carrying uh, EV yes. tolls near taxi. So yes. that division was involved uh, in the WISC joint venture with Kitty Hawk. Uh, it was also involved in the SkyGrid joint venture, which actually fell under my responsibility area. And that was a joint venture with a company called Spark Cognition in Austin, Texas. It was the application of AI to um, air traffic management. Uh, and then, um, so we did a whole bunch of just really, really cool things. And then obviously Boeing ran into some challenges and yeah. in 2019 uh, with the 737 MAX and then the pandemic hit. And that kind of, you know, spelled the uh the pause of boeing next and you know a bunch of us scattered to other parts of boeing and fortuitously for me um iris needed a ceo so i ended up meeting up with uh, iris's board and founders and and it was just a kind of a match made in heaven for me because the the business i sold to boeing was in computer vision uh, and some machine learning because uh-huh. when I sold the Boeing is 2015. So it's kind of the early days of applied uh-huh. AI and machine learning. Um, and we actually did some detect and avoid projects with Northrop Grumman back in like 2008, 2009. So I was uh-huh. very familiar with the space. Um, I started this story by telling you how I got into flying. Well, I pursued all of my ratings up to commercial and certified flight instructor. And, uh-huh. and I keep those current. So I'd been flying the whole time in parallel. And when this opportunity at Iris presented itself to, to combine kind of my business career path with my career path and, and kind of be in a leadership position for the future of flight, how could you say no? Like this is, this is a transformational time in aerospace. And uh, I just, I just feel incredibly fortunate to be a part of it at, at this moment. It's super cool and fun. Wow. I mean, this is this is what I think that definition of luck is when you're, you know, you've prepared and then the opportunity meets you. Um, I think, you know, as I talk to a lot of folks who are, you know, either aerospace engineers, pilots, uh, folks who've worked in AI and software, you know, this industry right now is just the perfect landing spot, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> for, it's hard to avoid them. In our, it, in our, it, it really yeah. is. You yeah. can't say more than two words and you, you found yourself in, in some kind of pun. But uh, yeah, I think we've yeah. got a goal, maybe three more in this podcast. Let's see if we can I'm get feeling there. good about it. Yeah. I, and the, <laughs> and the, if, if someone can add a fourth, they'll get a, a, free, a free cheeseburger. But when people ask me often about the future and what's going to be the fuel for that, one of the things I often talk about is DAA and BB loss. I mean, because this is critical. I mean, this yeah. will this will fuel everything that we know we're, we're we're marching towards. And so, when you think about the future of of UAS and aerial operations, what is your vision for the future? I mean, you're you're already in a company that's already you know future forward. Mm-hmm. What's your vision for what the future will look like? Yeah. Well. Um... So I'll, I'll start by answering a, a question about the future by referencing the past and, mm-hmm. and specifically the data that surrounds um, general aviation and specifically fatalities in general aviation. 
And when you drill into that data, which by the way, anybody can go um, find on AOPA's website, it's called the NALL report, N-A-L-L. What it does is kind of a meta-analysis of NTSB findings for incidents over, you know, the course of a year. So you can go pick any year and take a look at stats and you see trends over multiple years. It's, it's amazing treasure trove of data. Well, one of the, you know, more unsettling um, data points that come out of that is nearly 80% of general aviation fatalities are directly due to human error, specifically the pilot. And when you drill into that, it's primarily two modes that happen in there. One is lost aircraft. Uh, and then the other one is controlled flight into terrain. Mm-hmm. Say that again, slowly controlled <laughs> flight into terrain, right? Like wow, somebody right. flies into a mountain right. uh, or the ground. And so, you know, when you look at that, you go, well, geez, if we just get the human's hands off of the controls, mm-hmm. then we reduce aviation fatalities by nearly 80%. Mm-hmm. So to me, the future is, uh, I super, I get super excited about AAM and air taxis, just like anybody else. Like that's just right. anybody who to fly or not like just the idea of being able to transport yourself through the air for any distance uh, easily is just Mm -hmm. you know intoxicating that's great Mm -hmm. but for me when i look around the airports when i go fly every day most of the airplanes are on the ground (laughs) yeah they're not in the air where they're supposed to be um so that begs a question about well geez we already have a lot of unused capacity to move people from point a to point b on shorter distances than your typical airline flight. Mm-hmm. So it feels like we've already got the fabric of future air mobility, but we're not seeing it really be mm-hmm. or a small singular twin engine aircraft. So you have to say, what's the question there? Those statistics that come out of the NAL report are part of it. I think there's a general perception of those aircraft being less safe. And, you know, now you're automatically going to cut into your target market of people who would use that trench because if, if they don't feel safe, then they're, they're not going to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of see a future where we don't jump. We are taking steps to make it easier for the human today to operate aircraft, um, to remove the human's hands from the flight controls to put the human in the position where the human is best. And that is, you know, cognitive decision-making. Mm-hmm. For us to build technologies to. Hey, what John? they're doing. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. You know what I got? Uh, you got garbled there for one oh, second. Shoot. I know I am. Uh, you know what? I think I can, I'm going to edit us right there, but I'm going to have you pick up at unused um, airspace. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, aircraft, where you're yep. going with that. And yep. I'll, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just uh, edit it we'll all from it there. Okay. 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 Yeah. So when you look around the airports, you see a lot of helicopters and small planes that are underutilized. They're sitting mm-hmm. on the ground when in the air, but um so the capacity is there to move people short distances through the air, but we don't see it being adopted by the general public. And I, I think that comes down to primarily a perception of safety. And obviously the data, like I mentioned from the NAL report, reflects that. So what can we do to make flying safer and to help like that this mode of travel is actually trustworthy 
Um, and I think simplifying the pilot's jobs, making the systems do more of the aviating and navigating so that the pilot can do the communicating and the contingency management gets us there. Um, so I, I think, you know, when you look at companies like X-Wing or Reliable Robotics, they're doing some really interesting things with existing certified aircraft mm -hmm. and making them fly more automatically. I think that's great. Um, so where does Iris fit into that? Well, we become, you know, yes, our focus, there's a pun number two. Um, mm -hmm. Our focus is on detect and avoid right now, because that was our initial problem statement, why we built the company and the technology that we have. Mm -hmm. But under the hood of that is a generic machine learning and computer vision system that could be used to do a number of other things related to perception. So uh, internally, we kind of refer to our capability as the perception engine. And, you know, just to kind of put some flavor on that, what does that mean? Well, what other things could we do? Well, one of the things that challenges autonomous flight is the availability of uh, GPS. It's not always there and it's not always good. Most of the time it is, but it does break just like everything else. So how do you navigate an airplane automatically if you lose GPS? Well, what does a pilot do? They look out the window mm -hmm. <laughs> and they find landmarks and they reference mm -hmm. them to a map and then right. they fly a heading. Right. Yeah. So um, are, yeah. GPS denied nav is something that a visual system can do very well. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the things coming down the road uh, from us. Um, other things like terminal guidance using computer vision, because it's a high rate sensor that can provide precise relative position information to an autopilot. Um, and that would enable terminal guidance for arrivals and departures. Hmm. Um, other things you can do is landing zone or delivery zone clearance to ensure that there's no obstacles or obstructions in the way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the part that I see Iris fitting into in the future is, is the perception stuff that we kind of take for granted that the human right. does in an aircraft today hmm. um, that we're, you know, we're really close to being able to do with a system. And, you know, maybe that feeds directly into an autopilot and a completely autonomous system, uh, right. but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just fuels a different type of human machine interface for the safe operation of, of air vehicles. So um, wow. a very long winded answer, but uh, no, yeah, I, I mean, get excited. That is. I mean, those are all things that are, are critical to, you know, to, to where we're going. And when you think about... Um, you know, short term, because uh, there's there's a lot in what you're saying, and I know some of the things you know, take a while to come to life. But in the mm -hmm. short term, when you think about this idea of of beyond visual line of sight, especially mm -hmm. as it relates to UAS integration, um, mm -hmm. how how soon do you think that's going to be a reality? Um, and and how will Iris, you know, lead that? Yeah. So um, I was a member of the the Beyond Visual Line of Sight arc. Uh, this mm -hmm. year, which ARC is Aviation Rulemaking Committee. Yep. And um, I found the experience really encouraging. Um, you know, does, does the ARC agree on absolutely everything? Of course not, right? Mm -hmm. um, but kudos to the FAA, because I think what they did is they put together a large enough and a diverse enough set of perspectives for us to have the hard conversations now mm -hmm. um, prior to rulemaking. Right. Because once the FAA starts down the rulemaking process, then it's a public process. And, Absolutely. you know, if you try to have the argument in that forum, boy, it's going to take a long time to get mm -hmm. to a rule. Mm -hmm. But having the argument in the form of an arc is really good. 
And I found the discussions tremendously stimulating. I think both, um, well, more, there's more than two perspectives, but if you want to boil it down, you could say there's the, there's the new entrant perspective, and then there's the legacy aviation perspective. Uh-huh. Both sides want to see this future come to light. They really do. Uh-huh. And so there's step one, right? We found common ground right away. Everybody wants to see this happen. Uh-huh. So that's great. So then it becomes, well, how do we make this happen? And I think the encouraging bit for me is both sides learned more about the other side's perspectives on the issues Mm -hmm. and found a way to reach common ground. So that to me is super exciting. And I believe is going to pave the way, you know, probably not to rulemaking in 2022 because the process probably is just going to take longer than that. Um, but I think you're going to see more BV lost flights in 2022 through a variety of different mechanisms because now we all kind of get it. Mm-hmm. We're all kind of speaking the same language. We all know we want the ultimate outcome. So it's more everybody on one side pulling as opposed to like pointing and arguing. Um, so I, I'm encouraged. I, you know, I hear great positive messages out of the FAA for wanting to enable this and enable it safely and work with all the constituents to provide a path for the, the greater utilization of BV loss UAS um, mm-hmm. and, and likely starting with those use cases that have the greatest public benefit, which is great, right. you know, like firefighting, medical deliveries, um, mm-hmm. you know, hazmat response, um, disaster response. These are all just tremendous places where drones have already shown their value. Uh, and I expect to see a much broader set of more generic approvals for those types of use cases because they can be done safely uh, uh-huh. without a, without a lot of heavy lifting on either the technology or the regulatory side. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm staring down some projects in the in that space right now, and and I think you're spot on, and and I'm encouraged by the FAA's willingness to to really partner with you know the private sector and with industry. Um, to, to bring these things to life, but there's a, you know, they're trying to keep up with a lot uh, and a fast moving, you know, in, you know, sector that is on fire with startups and big companies. So I, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot for them to have to manage. Now I, I've heard the pessimism, I'm sorry, I've heard the optimism. <laughs> so when you think about the challenges and hurdles sure. for detecting and avoid UTM and autonomy, what do you think we need to overcome for these kinds of initiatives to become a real possibility? What are the real big issues you think that that are holding us up? Yeah, I, you know, uh, it's funny because I have this little diagram drawn on my board that I use to kind of think through some of the technical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, sharing the airspace and sharing the airspace with a larger volume of aircraft is one mm-hmm. of the biggest challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know. If everybody in the air knew precisely where everybody was and where everybody was headed, this problem gets really easy, really fast. Like algorithms would solve this tomorrow, Uh right? The problem is that that data, that input doesn't exist in that way. Uh So you have to ask yourself, okay, well, why? And that leads you to kind of the second challenge. So if the first challenge is just deconflicting traffic and managing airspace efficiently, The second challenge is sharing information, and that comes down to communication systems. Uh Um, You know, spectrum is a big challenge Uh for our industry. Absolutely. The the systems that are in place, that want to be in place, that are being ideated, it's it's kind of a dog's dinner of technologies. Uh And um, 
you know, my personal view is that if this was a clean sheet problem and you gave it to, you know, a bunch of really smart engineers, they would solve this problem in a different way. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, the pace of our industry is, is somewhat, um, it's the word I'm looking for. There's drag on our pace mm-hmm. due, mm-hmm. due to legacy systems mm-hmm. and, and the way it's always done. Now, you can't say the way it's always done is wrong. Because we have the safest transportation system in the world in the U.S. aviation environment, right? Mm-hmm. Like nobody moves that many people that many times that safely. So uh, it's not broken, but that doesn't mean it's suitable for the future. So I think, you know, when you start to layer these things together, the sharing of information bidirectionally and uniformly across all nodes in the network, the medium that needs to exist to share that data across all nodes in the network, And then, frankly, the willingness, um, political willingness to take the next steps to kind of think this clean sheet. Mm -hmm. Those are the hard bits Mm -hmm. Um, because you don't want to break what's there. Right. Right. And and this is this is an age old problem, you know, so I don't have the solutions. uh, But, you know, your question was where do I see the problems? It's it's those three areas. Um, Right. Well, you know, you mentioned something uh, with communication and and spectrum. This is a conversation that I've been having quite a bit. And when I think Mm -hmm. about smaller equipment um, and I think about infrastructure, the infrastructure Mm -hmm. is going to take for us to actually take advantage of detect and avoid and BV loss and all this, you know, interoperability of equipment. Um, What are your thoughts on the uh, capabilities of 5G and how do you see that impacting what we're doing moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't profess to be an expert in cellular technologies at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it holds great promise, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what you're talking about is the availability of the internet over a distributed network. Mm-hmm. Um, the specific challenges are is, you know, most of the cellular company's customers are on the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so guess what? You're going to design your network around where your customers are, which is on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some questions there. And again, I'm I'm not well enough versed in the technology to speak specifically to this challenge, but the air is big and Mm -hmm. um, those nodes are going to be more widely separated and faster moving. So there are, there are some technical challenges, I believe that come out of that. Mm-hmm. and the use of cellular for, for this type of operation. Now that said, mm-hmm. you know, a small drone close to the surface that's not moving very fast probably works great. Right. That's, that's not that different than the current use case of cellular, mm-hmm. you know, uh, modems mm-hmm. on phones and iPads and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, okay, put that on a 150 mile an hour air taxi that's mm-hmm. flying at 2,000 feet. I don't know. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what needs to be changed in that system. But uh, for me, it feels like we've got this incredible thing called the internet that I didn't have when I went to college. Right. That has this capacity to carry data, um, open, encrypted, whatever, between any two nodes on the network. That to me feels like the future backbone for our air traffic management systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, there's there's other things in there in terms of you know protecting that infrastructure and vulnerabilities against bad actors and. Right. That's a whole separate, you know, dialogue. But um, I, I'm encouraged by the use of cellular technologies for, for communication and aviation. I want to see it happen. Good. I think it'd be good. 
Well, this uh, this leads me to my last question, and um, I'm going to go off, you know, script here. Do you trust um, what's coming in artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, to really be be the backbone of of our operations um, for for autonomous systems? What where where where's your head at on that? Yeah, you know, it's really <laughs> it's really funny because the the human. Well, I shouldn't say all humans, but I believe the general reaction to that question, people just jump to thinking of the Cyberdyne Systems Model T101 Terminator, uh, right? And and uh -huh. these self-aware, self-actuating cognitive systems when they hear the words AI. Um, I don't. Um, and the reason I don't is that I don't think, especially in aviation, I don't think we ever need to get to complete autonomy. Uh-huh. I think we just need higher levels of automation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might lead all the way up to something that appears to be autonomous. But when I think of the word autonomous, I think of something that doesn't really have a set of instructions and is mm -hmm. just given a problem and in a very human way tries to ideate a solution to that problem. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need that in aviation. Like mm -hmm. we have a very well-structured rules-driven environment that just needs more capacity. So I, I don't actually think we need to get to autonomy. Uh -huh. um, I think there's a bunch of things in the system, even all the way down to runway markings. Um, right. To a computer vision engineer, runway markings look like something that we refer to as a fiducial. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a known pattern that is fixed that we can recognize, right? Uh -huh. Now the behaviors I can have a system do based on recognizing that fiducial will eerily look human, but they're very deterministic behaviors because they're all mathematically driven. So it's more automation than it is autonomy. Um, so, you know, and, and by the way, you know, in terms of getting to that kind of level of autonomy it, through AI, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, likely not in my kid's lifetime. Mm -hmm. Now, do incredible AI based methods to solve really, really hard problems in a way that humans just can't? Absolutely. Like we've mm -hmm. got that today. So I actually see the biggest impact from, from AI and machine learning capabilities less in the runtime systems, but more in the development of the runtime systems. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, whether it's through simulation or whether it's through modeling or whether it's through, you know, pouring through just mountains of data this is where AI, machine learning, deep learning, neural nets, all of those things just are just tremendous, you know, and, yeah. and you can get to answers that would take years to iterate. Of to course. Right. Well, John, I know we're all ready, you know, to, to get the week started for Christmas plans. So those have been your six questions. Thank you so much for joining us on Zeocast today. Bronwyn, my pleasure. Always great to talk to you, and uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed it. I don't know if we got to our three puns, but uh, you know. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank Thanks. You, we'll see All you later. Right. Bye bye. bye. Zeocast is a podcast dedicated to all things unmanned and geospatial. Only six questions per guest, so you can get the essence of their wisdom. Brought to you by Zeo Air, an outsourced AI-based drone services and data management company, www.zeoair.com.